Well, if you haven't opened your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, please do that now. I hate losing. I do not like to lose. If I'm playing a game, I want to win. I must win. When I was growing up, I was such a sore loser, so much so that one of my brothers gave me the nickname Benji McEnroe, named after the infamous tactics of legendary tennis player John McEnroe. If you remember John McEnroe, John McEnroe would lose it if there was a bad call or if he lost a match. He'd yell, scream, curse, throw tennis rackets, hit things with his tennis racket. That was me. That is me. I mean, growing up, if, if I was playing an Atari game with my brother and he, like, combat or something and he was winning, I was the kid that would unplug it so, so, the, so that my brother couldn't relish the victory. If we were playing Monopoly, I was the kid that kind of channeled Jesus flipping the tables over in the temple. I was the kid that flipped the board. So you've got, like, red and green houses flying through the air and a thimble and a shoe and the iron. I don't like to lose. When I watch sports, my team must win. And when the Dallas Cowboys lost in the playoffs earlier this year, it was a hard day for this fan. Even the Super Bowl was hard for me. I didn't have a dog in the fight. I didn't care if the Patriots won or the Seahawks won. But when the Seahawks were a few yards from the end zone, at that moment, because I love a good comeback, they became my team. Because I wanted to see them score a touchdown. And they didn't give the ball to Marshawn Lynch. But they threw a pass instead, and I lost it. I was actually in Minneapolis at a pastor's conference which was starting the next day, and I was yelling at my TV, Marshawn Lynch, the greatest running back in the league. What? You know, I lost it. They threw a pass, game over. So even though they were not my real team, I lost that Super Bowl. And I don't like to lose. I suspect that most of you don't like to lose either. I mean, who enjoys losing? Well, maybe you're thinking, I don't mind losing. It's not that big of a deal. I don't lose it like that when I lose. Well, let me phrase it another way. I don't like not getting my way. I don't like it when I don't get my way. Well, now we're on the same page, aren't we? We all love to get our way, don't we? We all get upset when we don't get our way. All of us get upset when we don't get our way. All of us. Because we all want our way. We all want to win. And the churches that Peter was writing to were full of people just like you and just like me. He was writing to people who wanted to get their way. He was writing to people who hated to lose. He was writing to people who wanted to win. And so Peter comes along and he says, you're free to lose. You're free to lose now. 
And I think that's what must happen if these churches that Peter is writing to, or if, if this church is going to be a place characterized by what Peter describes in these verses that we'll look at today. If you're going to create a gospel culture in a church where these things in these verses take place, then people are going to have to lose. People are going to have to be willing to lose. Like when you're playing checkers with your kid and you let them win. When you're playing a game with your kids, sometimes you let them win. And when you do, you don't get upset that you lost. You don't start acting like John McEnroe because you let your kid win at checkers. Why? Because you chose to lose. You were free to lose that game of checkers. And if you're going to create a gospel culture in a church, people are going to have to embrace not getting their way. If you want to create a church culture where people have what Peter talks about in these verses here today, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts and humble minds, if you want a church like that, if you want a family like that, then someone's got to lose. People got to die to self if this is going to happen. And that's the whole reason why Peter brought up Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, way back at the end of chapter 2. And that's why Peter says in verse 8, finally, because Peter is still carrying over that theme of Jesus dying for sinners. And now Peter will call on the entire church to die to self. Peter will call on the whole church to realize that because they have all that they will ever need in the gospel, because they are in union with God's son, Jesus Christ, they are now free to lose. Free to give up their rights free to give up their wants, free to give up their wishes, free to give up their preferences for how they think church should be. They are now free to lose and they can now focus their energies on creating a gospel culture in the church where love of God and love of one another is contagious and spreading. And isn't that what we want for this church, that's what I want for this church, that we would create a gospel culture here where love of God and love for one another would not only be contagious, but that it would be spreading everywhere. That's what I want for grace. And Peter tells us how to create a gospel culture like that. Look at verse eight and hear the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
So Peter addressed the husbands and wives in the previous verses. We looked at that the past few weeks. And now Peter moves to address the entire church, all the churches that he is writing to. And he still has in mind Jesus laying down his life for selfish sinners like us. And so when Peter says in verse 8, finally, all of you, he means that he is now going to spell out how the entire church can die to self, how the entire church can sacrifice sacrifice and lay down their lives for one another. So let's look at each of these concepts and understand how they will help us to create a gospel culture in our relationships, in our families, and in this church. And the first thing that Peter says is have unity of mind. Have unity of mind. Now, if you've been around any sort of group where there was a decision to be made, you know that there are many, many answers. For instance, if a family wants to go out and eat at a restaurant, typically every person chimes in about where they want to go. And there was always at least one person who doesn't go along with the majority, right? Right, parents? There's always one rogue child that if everybody decides that they want in and out, there's one rogue child that says, no, I would rather go to McDonald's. I don't want to eat there. So when I read Have Unity of Mind, my first thought is this. Is this even possible? Is it possible to have unity of mind in a church, to have unity of mind in a home? Because we can't agree on anything. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and even in our churches, we will never be able to agree on everything perfectly and completely. For instance, we all like different football teams. We all like different TV shows. For some of us are free to watch rated R movies with violence and action Some of us are free to listen to certain musical groups like the Beatles. Some of you don't listen to the Beatles. I listen to the Beatles because they're my favorite band. I have freedom in my conscience to listen to the Beatles. Some of us are free to drink alcohol while others may not be free in their conscience to do that. So it really doesn't matter what the topic is or what the subject is, whatever we're talking about, right off the bat, there will be disagreement. So I read what Peter says in verse 8, have unity of mind, and I get very skeptical. Is it even possible to have unity of mind in a church full of selfish sinners who want their way? A church full of selfish sinners who don't like to lose. Is it even possible? I think it is. I think it is possible. I think it is possible to have unity of mind in a church, but it means that someone has to lose. Someone has to die to their preferences. Whatever the issue that is before us, we will not all think the same about that. We all have differing ideas about church and and what, what we would like church to be. We all have differing ideas about how the music should be, the decor, how we've decorated, the preaching, the way we dress, maybe different theologies, maybe different end time beliefs, differing opinions on the coffee. Some of you want Folgers here. By God's grace, we will never have Folgers here. 
If anything, we move up from Hope Coffee, and I love Hope Coffee and, and Mark and the people, what they're doing with Hope Coffee, but we get Starbucks in here. That's my preference. Some people have different ideas of how we do communion, what youth ministry should look like, what Sunday school should look like. We all have differing ideas about church, so how in the world do we ever have unity of mind? The answer, someone has to die. Someone has to die to their preferences, their wishes, and their wants. If we want to have unity of mind in a church, and that doesn't mean that we're robots and that we don't celebrate our differences, and that doesn't mean that somebody has to make a decision that goes against what everybody likes, but if we want to have unity of mind, then someone has to die. A lot of people have to die. If we want to have unity of mind, then we all have to gather around the one thing that we all agree on, the gospel. If we want to have unity of mind in this church, then we all have to gather around the one thing that we all agree on, and that's the gospel message. And so the gospel is actually the one thing that will actually give us this power to die to self and be willing to lay down our lives and to die to our preferences. So the gospel is the one thing that will empower you to lose and to lose gracefully. The one thing that will enable us to have unity of mind is the one thing that we must all gather around and that is the gospel. And when we rehearse the gospel, when we gather around the one thing that brings us together, the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus, and when that glorious message gets down into the nooks and crannies of our hearts, then we'll suddenly realize, and and I'll suddenly realize, and you will suddenly realize that you're free to lose When you realize that you have all that you will ever need in the gospel, you're free to lose and free to give up your rights. You're you're free to quit trying to get your way all the time. You're free from trying to win. Free to quit fighting for your way and how you think things should be. When you realize that the greatest problem of yours has been taken care of, that your sins are forgiven and you've been given this alien, foreign righteousness from Jesus Christ because of his perfect life and death, this alien, foreign righteousness that enables you, a selfish, rebellious sinner, to stand in the presence of a holy God and not be annihilated. When you realize that the sovereign Lord of the universe, Christian, is not mad at you anymore, that he poured all his wrath against your sin out on his son. When you realize that Jesus satisfies and that he's better than anything that this world has to offer us, when that gets down into the nooks and crannies of your heart, then you're free to lose everything because you already have everything. And when you can get to that place, that's freedom. That's true freedom. True freedom is realizing that you have all that you will ever need in Jesus Christ because you are in union with him. And so then you can die to your wants and you can lose. That's freedom. You want to be free today? That's freedom. And that kind of freedom will enable you to have unity 
of mind. Another thing that Peter wants for these churches, he says in verse 8, is sympathy. He wants his readers to be sympathetic to others. And the way that you become sympathetic to others is simply by rehearsing the gospel. The problem, of course, is that we're so selfish that we tend to focus on our hurts and, and our wounds and how we were neglected and hurt. And they said that about us and we didn't get our way there. And we focus on those things and we neglect or ignore the pain of others. And so because we're so focused on self, we don't see others and therefore we're not sympathetic. And when we fail to be sympathetic, it's as if we have suffered a paper cut when our brother or sister in Christ has punctured lungs and severed arteries. And we're sitting back crying about a paper cut while others are bleeding to death and they can't breathe. Peter wants his audience to be sympathetic. And they will be sympathetic if they gather around the gospel and they see anew what Jesus did to redeem selfish sinners like us. Peter also wants them to have brotherly love, he says in verse 8. Not surprisingly, Peter calls on the church to love one another. He already did this in chapter 1, verse 22, when he said, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is not just any kind of love. Peter says it's this brotherly love. Peter is again drawing on the image of the family. He already pointed out in chapter 1, verse 17, that we call on God as our Father. So he reminds us once again to have this brotherly love because we are a family here at Grace. We're called to love one another with brotherly love, with this family kind of love. And where does this kind of love come from? It comes from Jesus Surely Peter has Jesus' words ringing in his ears. What did Jesus say in John 13, verses 34 to 35? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. And that's why Peter brought up the suffering of Jesus at the end of chapter 2. Because he wants his readers to love others just like Jesus loved them. He's trying to motivate his readers to love like Jesus by pointing out that Jesus first loved us. And he proved that by living and dying for us. And Peter knows that all people, the watching world and other Christians... All people will know that we are disciples if we have love for one another. Why? Why is it that people will know this? Because only the gospel can empower people to love like Jesus. Only the gospel can give a selfish sinner power to love other selfish sinners in the way that Jesus loved selfish sinners. And that's how you can tell if someone is a disciple. Do they love like Jesus does? Not perfectly, of course, because none of us could ever love perfectly the way Jesus loved, but do they have love? Only the gospel can give selfish sinners 
power to love other selfish sinners the way that Jesus loved selfish sinners. And if you let the love of Jesus get down inside the nooks and crannies of your heart, you'll start telling yourself, you're free to lose. You're free to lose. When you realize that all that you will ever need, you have in Jesus Christ because you are in union with him, then you'll start loving others with a brotherly love. Well, that's not all that Peter wants for this church. He wants him to have unity of mind and to be sympathetic and to have brotherly love. But he also says in verse eight, have tender hearts. You see, the gospel just has a way of creating tender hearts. Literally, the word is guts in in the Greek. Peter wants his audience to have guts, meaning he wants them to be compassionate and, and caring. He wants them to have tender guts, tender hearts. But if you know scripture, you know what the Bible says about our hearts. What does the Bible say about our hearts? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. Your heart deceives you. Some of you are sitting there right now thinking, I'm not a selfish sinner, pastor. You must be talking about all these other people in here. The heart is deceitful. Your heart will deceive you into thinking that you're not as bad as you are. The heart is deceitful. It will trick you. Your own heart will turn on you and tell you you're not that bad. It'll actually tell you, you're pretty good. All those people are bad, but you're the one exception in humanity other than Jesus. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Your heart is sick with sin. Because of Adam's sin. Who can understand it, Jeremiah says? Only God. So how in the world, Peter, can we have tender hearts, can we have tender guts, if our own hearts are sick with sin and selfishness? How do we ever conquer a selfish heart that wants and wants and wants and wants and wants what it wants? The answer, you know the answer, It's the gospel. Duh. You knew that answer was coming, didn't you? What does Paul say in Romans 5.5? And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We can have tender hearts, tender guts, even though we're selfish sinners because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And the love that has been poured into our hearts is none other than the Holy Spirit. He lives in our hearts and he is working 24-7 to transform our sinful hearts into tender hearts, into tender guts. Well, there's another characteristic of a gospel culture that Peter wants for these churches and for these Christians. In verse eight, he says, have a humble mind. The gospel can give you a humble mind. But what a weird picture. Have you thought about that? A humble mind? It's a weird picture, weird imagery, but it's spot on. 
We're called to have humble minds because we all think that our way is best. We're called to have humble minds because we all think that our way is best. Our ideas are the greatest. Our opinion is correct. Our view of a particular topic is the most balanced. No wonder Peter calls for humble minds because we are all so full of ourselves, aren't we? We think with our minds that our way is best. I, don't, I could drop any one of you, including myself, into any situation to talk about any topic and every single one of us would think with our minds, my way is best. My, my opinion's the best. It's the most balanced, the most researched, the most well thought out. We use our minds, we think with our minds that our way is best. We use our noggins to think my way is best. How arrogant. Peter says that we should have humble minds that don't think that we're the best. We're the most important. Our way is right. Our thoughts are best. Am I the only one that thinks this way? Because if you ask me about anything, I'm right. Tim Keller said this. If we were to meet a truly humble person, C.S. Lewis says, He's talking about what C.S. Lewis would say. We would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself Or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Let that sink in. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. And what this church needs, what every church needs, what your marriage needs, what your family needs, is for you to think of yourself less. What the people in my life and what the people in your life need is for you and I to think of ourselves less. Less of what you want. Less of what you think is right. Less of how you think things should be. Less of how you don't like this and you don't like that. Less of you. Gospel humility is not needing to think about yourself. Gospel humility is not needing to talk about yourself all the time. So whatever the topic is in a church, music, sound, clothes, food, clothing, style, race, room temperature, coffee, whatever it is that we tend to fight over and want to get our way in, gospel humility will become the norm when we all think of ourselves less. Do you want to help create a true, beautiful gospel culture here at Grace? Then remove yourself from the equation. Think of yourself less. And that's painful because we like our PR, don't we? 
Man, we like us. It's painful. But if you begin to realize that you have all that you will ever need in Jesus Christ because you are in union with him, you might start muttering to yourself, even under your breath, you're free to lose. You're free to lose. As topics and subjects and conversations happen, when you realize you have all that you need in Jesus, as people are talking about what color carpet it should be, you can start saying to yourself, you're free to lose. You're free to lose this battle. You're free to lose. Gospel humility will take over this church when you find that true freedom comes when you're free to lose. Well, all that I've been saying so far came out of one verse, so we need to buckle down and get busy because we have a few more verses to look out and we're running out of time. So look at verse nine. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Peter is again alluding to what he said about Jesus at the end of chapter two. Jesus never retaliated. Jesus never fired back at any of his accusers. When people said false things about him, because he never sinned, when they lied about him, when they ran their mouths, he didn't run his mouth back. He says in chapter two, Peter says he kept entrusting to himself to him who judges justly. I'm so amazed at this verse at the end of chapter two. He never opened his mouth. To me, that's the most, to me, that's more miraculous than parting the Red Sea or making manna appear. The fact that Jesus never opened his mouth and responded the way that we all respond when we don't get our way or when someone comes back at us. I'm, this verse has floored me. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around. How did you not respond that way? You were God. You could have done that Jedi thing and like, you know, done anything you wanted. You didn't respond that way. So Peter reminds his readers that they're called to copy Jesus in this matter. He didn't revile. They're, not, they're called not to revile. So instead of repaying evil with evil, instead of returning reviling for reviling, we're called to actually bless other people. How countercultural is that? Who does this? Who responds like this? The world retaliates. The world says an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But the gospel calls for this strange, this queer, this weird way of responding to sinful people. The gospel calls for a countercultural response when you are wronged. The gospel calls for a countercultural response when you are slandered. The gospel calls for a countercultural response when you are shunned. The gospel calls for a counter cultural response when you are reviled and I'm not good at that kind of response but this just makes sense doesn't it because after all we're pilgrims in this world as we've seen so far in this series in first Peter called exiles we're exiles we're, we're transients we're strangers and we're called to respond differently we're called to bless our enemies this is our calling. This is God's will for our life. You know what your, God's will is for your life? It's to bless your enemies. So what does it mean to bless someone? To bless someone means that you move from a place of resentment and you move from a place of retaliation and you move from a place of reviling to a place of asking God to show favor and grace and mercy on those who hurt you. 
To bless someone means that you seek their highest good. Please let me say that again because it is so countercultural. To bless someone means that you move from a place of resentment, you move from a place of retaliation, you move from a place of reviling to a place of asking God to show favor and grace and mercy on those who hurt you and on those who have wronged you. To bless someone means that you seek their highest good. Can you imagine What kind of church this church would be if we created a gospel here where our first response to being hurt and offended was not one of resentment, not one of retaliation, not one of reviling, but one of blessing? Can you imagine what kind of church culture our children would grow up in where we were always seeking the other person's highest good? Wow, we might make the six o'clock news. Imagine a church full and only full of selfish sinners who get hurt and offended by other selfish sinners. And instead of being full of resentment and wanting to retaliate against those selfish sinners, we actually wanted to bless the selfish sinners who hurt us. What if we actually started praying that God would bless them and shower them with favor and grace and mercy? Well, the only thing powerful enough to cause selfish sinners to treat other selfish sinners so well is the gospel. It's only as we see Jesus loving us selfish sinners through the stink and the funk of our sin, it's only then that we'll be able to go (coughs) and do that for others. The only way that we'll love other people is if we meditate on how much God loves us. And the upshot is that if we bless others this way, we get a blessing. That's Peter's point when he says in verse nine that we may obtain a blessing. It's as we bless others that blessing comes back round to us. It's a win-win situation. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. It's a win-win situation because that means there's less drama. There's less drama in our lives when we bless others, which is why Peter quotes Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 12. He already quoted Psalm 34 in chapter 2, verse 3, when he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. He quotes Psalm 34 again. Now, why? Peter quotes Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 12 Because Peter wants to explain to his readers how the gospel can actually help you live a drama-free life. Would you like that? Would you like to have less drama in your life? Sign me up for that, Peter. He tells us how in verses 10 through 12. Look. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here's what Peter is saying, which is what Psalm 34 is saying, is that if you want to live a drama-free life, watch your tongue. Watch what you say. Watch what comes out of this little hole. And isn't that so true? Because what causes most of the drama 
in churches. It's people running their mouths. What causes all the drama in our homes? It's people running their mouths. What causes all the drama in our workplaces? It's people running their mouths. What causes all the drama in our neighborhoods? It's people running their mouths. What causes all the drama on social media? It's people running their mouths. What causes all the drama in all of our relationships? Say it with me and do the hand motions if you like. It's people running their mouths. Peter is saying that we would cut out a whole lot of drama if we watched what we said. But oh, how hard it is to control our tongues. How difficult it is to keep this hole shut. And what does James, Jesus' brother say in James 3? For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. That passage sweeps the legs out from underneath me and exposes my sin. Let's create gospel cultures in our homes and in this church and in all of our relationships where by God's grace we watched what we said. And let's create gospel cultures where we turn from evil and we do goods that benefit and bless our neighbors. And let's be a church that seeks peace out. Let's be a church that seeks and pursues peace. What an oasis this church would be if in the midst of a crazy, chaotic world that is desperately looking for and craving peace, if we actually started seeking peace and cultivating it here. Well, the gospel is the answer because we can't do this on our own. We need Jesus. The gospel frees us up to lose. But maybe you're thinking about all that you will lose. Doesn't sound that fun, right? To lose, to give up your rights, to die to selfishness, to bless others. But what about all that you lose? That's a valid point which is why Peter reminds us that God is our Father and that he's watching over us. He says in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So God is watching you. He's looking after you, not to get you. God is not out to get you, Christian. This is not a passage saying, you better straighten up because God's watching you. This is the passage that's telling you that if you give up your rights and die to selfishness and you let go of the things that you want, then remember that God is watching over you. 
that he sees you. He sees you sacrificing. He sees you losing. He sees you giving up your rights. And he knows. And he will bless you and take care of you when you lose. You can lose because God is watching over you. And because God is watching over you, nothing goes unnoticed. And then Peter says, God listens to your prayers. So pour out your heart to him. If you lose and die and give up your wants, go tell your heavenly father how you struggle with that. He listens. Talk to him. Instead of running your mouth to others about what you don't like, run your mouth to God. He's listening. The God of the universe listens to you. His ears are open. So these verses are not warnings to believers. These verses are encouraging words for people who choose to lose. The warning is found in verse 12, and that's directed against unbelievers. The wicked better be careful because God's face is against them, so they better repent. But these verses contain gospel promises that if you lose and give up your rights, you have a heavenly Father who is watching over you and listening to you as you lose. Robert Capon said, grace doesn't sell. You can hardly even give it away because it works only for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. Grace doesn't sell. You can hardly give grace away. You know why? Because grace only works for losers. Nobody wants to be in the loser line. Grace is for losers who know that they have nothing to bring to the table. Grace is for losers who come to this table and say, I've been running my mouth. Grace is for losers who come and say, I haven't blessed others. I haven't had unity of mind. I haven't been sympathetic. Grace is for losers who bring nothing to the table. No righteousness of their own. No, well, I was pretty good in that conversation, so I'm bringing that to the table. No, grace is for losers who bring nothing to the table, who know that they can't be good enough to earn God's favor. Grace is for those people who know that they're selfish sinners who always want their way. They know they're lost and weak and hopeless without Jesus. And when losers like this run to Jesus, they find that the gospel call is to lose and to give up their rights because they have all that they need in Jesus. What wonderful freedom the gospel brings to selfish sinners like us. And now, because of Jesus, you have everything that you need, Christian. And because you have Jesus, you're free to lose. Let's pray. Father, We've been exposed by your law as sinners. We've all ran our mouths. We've all done the exact opposite of this whole passage. And there's your son standing in perfect righteousness, doing everything that we could never do. And what wonderful news it is that Jesus says, give me all your junk, all your crud. Give me your running of your mouth, spewing forth hateful, evil things. Give me that. I'll go to the cross and pay for it. Here's my righteousness. Here's my life of not reviling, not retaliating. That is yours. I'll take your sin to the cross. I'll bear the wrath of my Father for you. What beautiful news the gospel is, Father, so we can stand and sing this morning. Because of Jesus, it is well with our soul. In his name, amen.